Social media, streaming media, healthcare stocks, investors assemble. Motley Fool Money starts now. This is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me in studio, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser and Matt Argersinger. Good to see you as always, gentlemen. Hey, hey. Man, it is great to be in. It's good to be in the studio. We got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We will dip into the Fool mailbag. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with a chaotic end to the week for social media stocks. Shares of Snap fell nearly 40% on Friday after second quarter results for the social media company came in lower than expected. Snap also said it plans to slow hiring. The reaction also sent shares of Pinterest, Meta Platforms, and Google lower. Matt, we will get to the ripple effects in a minute, but first, how bad is this for Snap? Well, bad enough to send the stock down, I think it's around. Well, to the market cap around 17 billion. And I think what's remarkable is less than a year ago, September 2021, Snap's market cap was over 130 billion. I think that just shows you some of the insanity we were seeing in the market last year. But I can't argue with the market's reaction. I mean, if you look at the earnings, user growth slowing, we know the ad market is softening. That tends to happen. But I think what I'm focusing on is that. If you look at Snap's five-year history as a public company, it's never had positive earnings, and not not once. I mean, not in a single year. It's never really had even any meaningful cash flow, especially if you adjust for the stock-based compensation, which is out of this world egregious. But it also worries me. I think in the second paragraph, you know, the they they kind of lay out the bad news. But the next thing they say is we're going to do a five hundred five hundred million dollar share repurchase. I don't think that's a great use of capital. I, have to say. <laughs> I just think if you're losing hundreds of millions of dollars every quarter on in, in earnings, um, and, and and by the way, keep in mind, Jason actually pointed this out before the show. It's not like they have five billion in cash, as they've stated, and you know, this five hundred million they have, they can cover it. They actually have four over four billion dollars in debt, and so laying out all that cash to buy back shares when your business isn't even kind of on an even keel, especially after five years of being a public company, when your users are at the the highest they've ever been and you still can't make a profit, it has me concerned. Yeah, and I think they explicitly stated too, right? I mean, those repurchases are to offset that dilution. It's not I mean right. they frame it as we're trying to protect shareholders. And I mean I guess I appreciate their <laughs> their honesty. but but the bottom line is, you know, and we talked about this I think last week maybe in just we were talking about metrics that maybe kind of fly under the radar. And I had mentioned share repurchases looking one step further into share count outstanding, right? Because those repurchases are meant to bring that share count down, and in the case of Snap, that that obviously isn't going to be the case. No. It's it's not like that's unique to them. I mean, this is this is part and parcel for the tech industry, but but still, it it's worth noting. I mean, I agree. It just doesn't feel like the most ideal use of that capital at this point when the company clearly has right. To play well, and yeah, exactly. And that's your go-to, right? Your go-to is 
can we stop the bleeding? So let's let's announce this what seemingly is a massive buyback. But even yeah. even at the market cap today, again around 17 billion, 500 million is, is not. And and you, you just said it's it's not going to be accretive to shareholders anyway. So it's not going to move the needle really. Yep. In fairness to Snap, we have seen much larger, much more profitable companies like Microsoft come out and say, "Hey, we're slowing hiring." Let's put that aside for a second. I want to go back to something you said, Matt, about the ad market softening. We're seeing so many companies pulling back on the marketing lever because that's a lever they can control. Is it warranted that what we're seeing with shares of Meta and Alphabet, like if I'm a shareholder of either of those companies, how concerned should I be about a pullback in ad spending? I I don't think if you're a, if you're a long-term shareholder of those you should be concerned at all. To me, Google especially I mean, you made this point, Jason, earlier, which before the show, which is just the search-based advertising is such a, um, I don't know, a, a different model. I think Meta, I could see, you know, they're going to have some ripple effects, but even them beyond Snap, they're so much more diversified. I think of Meta as, you know, with all the things they have going, it's not just it's not just messaging like Snap. It's you know, it's Facebook, it's Instagram, it's Stories, Reels. I mean, it's 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 a wider ecosystem around social media that they can kind of uh, play into. So I, I, I tend to think Snap is a little unique. It's 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 a very narrow niche among users. It's a, it's a very narrow experience, as far as I know. I'm not a Snap user, but that seems to be the case. And I I, I can understand why it's having a little bit of an effect on the other players, but it doesn't it shouldn't be meaningful in my view. Yeah, I mean, to me, I, you're right. Snap fairly niche. I think Twitter falls in that same category. I'd look at those two businesses. Let's just put put Musk. The Musk Twitter drama aside for a second, Twitter is just its own standalone business. I mean, you look at those as very uh, niche plays that they're going to be the first to go, right? Advertisers are going to say, we just don't realize the same return on our investment that we do on something like a Google, for example. So when I see a Google, and I would put Google above Meta in this case, uh, just because I think search is so resilient and Meta is in a bit of transition. I see Meta down, or I see Google down five percent today on this news. I mean, to me, that represents an opportunity because while the ad market may be softening, Google's still going to get the lion's share of the dollars going into that market. And when things do recover, they're going to continue to get the lion's share, and that price is going to recover. Later in the show, we're going to get into the latest from Netflix and and really dig into the connected TV market. But do you think we are now entering a period? Of let's just call it the rest of 2022, where we are, we as investors are going to see sort of the proverbial wheat separated from the chaff when it comes to advertising businesses. Because if companies across the board are cutting their marketing spends, then the competition becomes even fiercer across every platform, doesn't it? Like, aren't we entering a period now where we're just going to see the fight becomes much harsher? I think so, and I think we we talk about it often when you when you enter these periods of of tough times and headwinds, or companies have to weigh uh, investments they're they're making. It feels to me like the stronger companies usually the strongest companies usually come out of these periods even stronger, right? And so you look to the market leaders in this case. Again, going back to companies like Meta, Google, I mean, you could probably throw Microsoft in there to an extent at this point, given the investments they're making in their advertising business. It just looks, it really just feels like these are the times when the strongest businesses come out of these stretches even stronger. It's just difficult to see at the time because everything is is taking a shellacking. Yeah, and I throw Amazon in there as oh, well. Yeah, another I mean, and it's companies that obviously sustainable business models, prodigious cash flow, all the companies you named, right? And that's not. Snap at all. 
Before we go to break, Jason, you mentioned Twitter. I should point out Twitter's second quarter results were lower than expected. The company blamed the drop in ad revenue on the uncertainty, and I'm using air quotes because that's the word they use, surrounding the company's future regarding the takeover by Elon Musk. Do you think that's bigger news, or the fact that in the first round of the legal fight, round one went to Twitter? Because Elon Musk and his attorneys were looking to push the trial out to next year, and the judge came out and said, nope, we're doing an expedited trial starting in October, and it's going to last five days. Yeah, I mean, Twitter Twitter just seems like a completely uninvestable company at this point, regardless the outcome. I think it's pretty fascinating that they're really pushing hard for this acquisition to go through. That tells you they really see that as the best outcome. And I don't disagree. I mean, I think we've seen enough of a track record here in regard to Twitter over the last several years to understand it's kind of it's hit its potential. As a matter of fact, I think its potential is way in the rearview mirror, right? Maybe. If Musk ends up with this thing, perhaps there's the opportunity to realize some unfulfilled potential there. I mean, if I were a shareholder, which I'm not, I would be rooting for that because I think that the status quo clearly isn't cutting it there. Yeah, it just to me, this is just such a mess in every regard. Investors are getting screwed, employees are getting it worse. I mean, wow! You know, hats off to the judge for 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 kicking in this expedited trial because it really does feel like this is something that does not to drag that doesn't need to drag out any longer than it already has. Well, I am a Twitter shareholder, unfortunately, yeah. and uh, this I do view it as unfortunately the best outcome because this is a I think this is a business that the its influence has always belied its valuation. Yeah, and I always thought at some point that would connect a little bit. We all did. They'd find the model right, and and they would they would create the value that I think. It, the platform actually creates for a lot of people for millions, and but it hasn't been the case. And I and I think unfortunately this this fifty fifty four dollars and twenty cents, right? I guess that's what I'm rooting for because that's probably <laughs> the best outcome if that happens. It was a big week for the healthcare industry. We will break down the latest right after the break. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Matt Argusinger and Jason Moser. Shares of Intuitive Surgical up for the overall week, but down a bit on Friday after second quarter profits came in lower than expected for the surgical robot company. Jason, what's going on here? Are hospitals just not buying the Da Vinci surgical system as much as they used to? Well, yes and no. They've bought. They continue to invest in the Da Vinci, but they continue to invest in the latest iteration of the Da Vinci, and it feels like we've kind of hit a saturation point there in that regard. So that probably is contributing a little bit to these results. Um, I mean, it's another business had a tough start to the year. I think shares are down close to forty percent. It is a much more competitive environment than ever before, and so this is a company that continues. Needs to innovate, but I mean the numbers—they were okay, right? Second quarter revenue 1.52 billion dollars. That was up four percent from a year ago. Earnings per share fell 16 cents from a year ago. When you look at the Da Vinci setup, there they placed 279 surgical systems. That was down from 328 a year ago. Now it's not because 
folks don't like them. It's just because they have, as they said in the call, they say, as our customers have standardized on generation four DaVinci systems, the installed base of third generation systems has declined. That's lowering the trade-in population. Ultimately, a lot of people have already uh, sort of uh, you know gone ahead and traded up to that to that new generation four system, which is a good thing, right? And if you look at procedures, procedures grew fourteen percent from a year ago. Now, if you compare that to a year ago, a year ago that was sixty-eight percent. But it could be argued there was a coiled spring effect there, given. The headwinds in the healthcare space for obvious reasons. If you go back to 2019, that procedure growth was 17%, so a little bit more in line with what we just saw this most recent quarter. Um, and they are slowly but surely uh, installing more of the ion clinical uh, bases there, and that that is the bronchoscopy uh, system that that helps in regard to uh, lung cancer diagnoses. So I, I think that'll be something that continues to offer a little incremental growth. The in, the installed base total 7,135. Systems that's up 13% from a year ago. Uh, and they actually did raise procedure guidance modestly for the year. Uh, so that's that's all pointing to signs that the business is doing well, but hospitals are absolutely facing headwinds on spending and they're they're tightening up a little bit there. Shares of intuitive surgical down forty percent year to date is it it's obviously cheaper. How cheap is it? I'm wondering if this is a buying opportunity. It, it is. I feel like it is, given the the market position this company holds today. I mean, that installed base is really difficult to combat when you're a competitor. I will. You know, we go back to share repurchases. We were talking about Snap. I will ding them on this. They repurchased 500 million dollars in shares for the quarter. Yeah, all right. You know what? Share count's up oh, since boy. 2017. I don't go. like seeing that. Now, the flip side, they've got a very strong balance sheet, eight billion dollars in cash and equivalents with no debt. This is a well-run business and a very resilient market. I think if you're a long-term shareholder, you got to feel like the future looks pretty bright for these guys. Amazon is getting deeper into the healthcare industry. This week, the tech giant bought One Life Healthcare, a primary care practice that operates under the name One Medical. The price tag is $3.9 billion. It is an all-cash deal, Maddie. And when you look at shares of Amazon rising this week, that seems like a nice thumbs up from investors. I think, yeah, there's something to this. I mean, $3.9 billion, it's, it's a it's not a small acquisition, but for Amazon, it's a small bet, you know. And I think what it gives them, it gives them something that they haven't had as they've sort of built out this this approach to healthcare, which is which is 188 medical offices. So it's got that brick and mortar element that comes with it. And I'll point out, you know, they're they're buying the business for less than what One Medical came public at in early 2020, and about a 70 percent discount to its high. So I feel like it's Amazon being a little opportunistic here. They made the acquisition of PillPack, you know, several years ago, and I think a lot of us thought, "Wow, okay, Amazon's big step here." You know, that really hasn't, you know, I don't think that's reached the potential yet. Um, it hasn't been the game changer a lot of us thought. They launched Amazon Care, but I think this is a bigger step, and I think it's if you add all those th- those three things together, you've got the you know the pharmacy element, you've got this brick and mortar medical office, you know, personal healthcare service, you've got Amazon Care, the telehealth. You start to see the makings of I think what is an, what is an ecosystem here, and if they can test it out with their tens of thousands of employees, roll it out nationwide. Small bet becomes a big bet, and you know this is kind of a part of Amazon's strategy. And maybe it's, we're not far off from a year or two from now from Amazon Prime offering some kind of you know basic medical. Insurance plan or healthcare service that you can subscribe to. I was just going to say, is that where this is going? Where whether it's Amazon 
part of Amazon Prime, or it becomes its own standalone. It becomes a subscription service from the company. I could I could see that. I mean, I you know it'd be interesting to see if it's all rolled into one Amazon Prime subscription. But I could see something like Amazon Prime Plus. Oh gosh, that sounds terrible. But, you know, <laughs> something beyond that that where it's it's greater and it, it includes healthcare and as well as maybe. NFL ticket too, which I was just going to say the w- the waiting rooms only play Amazon Prime Video. <laughs> How far are we from? Wa- I mean, like it feels. I'm, I'm I'm the biggest advocate of Amazon Prime. It's just the cost of living in our house. I cannot tell you everything you get with it. At this point, it just feels like they add something on. I just don't know everything that you get with it anymore. Right. It feels like you kind of run that risk. I mean. You have this prime, this prime benefit, but you don't fully understand everything that you get for it. Maybe they could do a little bit of a better job of like, you know, I've noticed. That front well, seat. yeah, if you've ordered from Amazon lately and you go to kind of like your orders, your account, the the menu that you bring drop down menu is like thirty things long. It's, it's like their it's like their earnings release. Like, <laughs> you know, you just you, it takes an hour to read just all their accomplishments. You're like, wow, that's great, but just just give me give me the bottom line, right? <laughs> Business as usual for Johnson & Johnson. Third quarter profits were higher than expected. They raised guidance for the full fiscal year. Jason, nothing spectacular, just J&J doing what they've been doing for a while now. Slow and steady wins the race, Chris. Right? This is uh, this is exactly the thesis I think with a company like Johnson and Johnson. Been a very good performer this year in the face of a difficult market. Uh, back in April, that marked their 60th consecutive year of a dividend increase. That makes them a dividend king, plus not 10. just a dividend aristocrat. Yeah. Uh, so so yeah, this is one way I've said it before. Just the longer you own it, the more sense it makes. And and uh, the performance for the business, operational sales that excludes current. Effects were up eight percent, earnings per share up eight and a half percent, and they maintained the midpoint of their guidance, uh, which is encouraging. Uh, saw strong performance in pharmaceutical division uh, that that uh, was up twelve point three percent for the quarter, but they saw growth in all three segments: consumer health, pharmaceutical, and med tech. Uh, I think the big story with Johnson Johnson really, and, and we won't know until this actually happens, is when this business actually splits out into two separate entities. Right, they're going to split the consumer uh, side of the business. Out out and let the pharmaceutical and med tech do their own thing as the Johnson & Johnson brand. Uh, and that is one of the main priorities here for uh, relatively new CEO, Joaquin Duato. Um, you look at this business on the whole, right? you look at the med tech side of the business, 11 med tech platforms each delivered over $1 billion in revenue annually. You look at the consumer side of the business, too, there are four segments of the business that are delivering $1 billion better in revenue. So, altogether, very strong business. I feel like it'll be a strong two businesses once they actually execute the separation. That won't happen until later on in 2023. What happens to the dividend next year? That's the big question, right? I mean, I feel like if you're, you know, the ongoing Johnson and Johnson business that's the med tech and the farm pharmaceutical side that's i feel like you have to maintain that dividend increase right you got to maintain that reputation uh, who knows exactly what they'll do with the consumer health side of the business but th- those are questions that we'll have to uh, we'll have to ask as this gets closer i feel like both sides want to keep that streak going <laughs> yeah absolutely all right coming up after the break we've got the latest from netflix and a much closer look at the connected tv landscape so don't go anywhere you're listening to motley fool money it's good to be king If just for a while To be there in velvet Yeah, to give them a smile It's good to get high And never come down All right, later in the show, we've got radar stocks. But first, a message from our friends at Bigger Pockets. 
Real estate investing is one of the best ways to build long-term wealth. But to be a successful investor, you need to know what news and trends to pay attention to and what's just noise. I'm Dave Meyer, real estate investor and VP of analytics at Bigger Pockets. And in my new show, On the Market, a Bigger Pockets podcast presented by Fundrise, we bring you expert perspectives in a digestible format so you can make informed investing decisions. And we make it fun. I promise you, On the Market is definitely not another boring news show. Each week, I chat with a panel of experts about the latest news and trends affecting the real estate investing world. We touch on things like government policy, 3D printed houses, investing in the metaverse, and more. So join us every Monday for On The Market, the podcast designed to help you invest with confidence. Just search On The Market in your favorite podcast app. That's On The Market. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Matt Argusinger and Jason Moser. Netflix had previously warned it would lose 2 million subscribers in the second quarter. But when Netflix reported after the closing bell on Tuesday, the streaming leader shared that it only lost 970,000 subscribers. Jason, I'm, I'm sort of poking fun at them. Uh, on a more serious side, shares of Netflix up 17% this week. Beat expectations, man. I mean, hey, <laughs> yes, so it takes. Know, less bad is the new good. <laughs> Feels like we have hit, we've hit a new chapter of the Netflix story here, right? I mean, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I mean, we, we knew it was coming at some point. Uh, subscribers just don't grow to the moon. And uh, they're dealing with a much more competitive landscape than ever before. Um, you know, it is interesting to see the slowdown. I mean, you exclude currency effects; they grew revenue 13 percent for the quarter. I think more noteworthy, they're forecasting just 4.7 percent growth for the current quarter, and ultimately targeting getting subscribers back to where they were at the end of the first quarter this year. So, you know, it remains to be seen exactly. What kind of investment this is going forward? It is it is something. Remember, now nearly sixty percent of their revenue comes from outside of the U.S. So they are going to be more subject to those exchange related impacts as as time goes on. Um, but but really, I think the big story is clearly the advertising tier. I mean, that is something that they're going to be focused on here in the coming quarters, and they hope to roll that out in twenty twenty three. I'm torn here. Like, I mean, it is for a long time. So, the key for them, and they mentioned this in the letter, in the near term, a key priority to reaccelerate revenue is to evolve and improve their monetization. And they see doing that three different ways. One of them is the ad supported tier. Fully agree with that. Another one, they're going to continue to work on figuring out how to crack down on password sharing. Fully agree with that, too. The one that I'm kind of like, hmm, they better keep an eye on this. They want to keep an eye. They they're they're looking to figure out a way to keep the service simple, and I agree. But I think the problem is that Netflix, as time goes on, is becoming less and less simple. That was a big selling point in the early days, right? It was just one pricing tier. Then it became three. Now it's going to become who knows three plus an ad supported tier. And exactly how they roll that ad tier out remains to be seen. Um, I, I think they're doing the right thing in actually rolling that tier out. But it is just worth it's worth remembering. I mean, Hastings, for the longest time, we viewed him as the smartest guy in the room when it comes to streaming. And I think that's spot on. I think he is the smartest guy in the room when it comes to streaming. But that was a much different business than what we're seeing going forward. I don't know that that necessarily applies when we're talking about an ad-supported 
streaming service, right? I mean, he he's got a lot to learn, I think, in that regard. So hopefully, that's what they're doing is is taking some notes and figuring this out because I think that is going to be uh, that's going to be point of uncertainty. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna see a lot come come of this in the next couple of years as to whether they can really execute. Yeah, I think Netflix was really the only kid on the block, if you think about it, going back seven or eight years ago. And the competition, while I always felt, I, I same with you, I kind of liked Netflix's simplicity. It's something Reed Hastings talks about all the time. You know, we, we're simple, you pay us once a month, we deliver great content. No, no, you know, no, well, not many multiple tiers, not advertising, not live sports. We're going to just, you know, focus on, on made content. But the competition, I think, has, has pushed them. You know, I think they've seen competition be successful with ad tiers. Uh, they've seen success with other uh, platforms that roll out content slower. Episodes come out not all at once, but over weeks or over months. And that's, that's uh, you know, that's pushed them to do some things. But I want to go back to the, the very first thing you said, which is I think Netflix, you know, is kind of the first notable earnings announcement, guidance, et cetera, for this earnings season. And it really is about, just don't disappoint me too much. You know, like last quarter, you said it, Chris, before the show. Last quarter was like any hint of like you could you could have had blowout earnings didn't matter. Your your stock was getting crushed. Now it's now for every company, it's like well, just we understand things are bad. Investors know that. Just don't disappoint us anymore, and we'll we'll reward the stock. And I think that might be the way going forward. And I think a good thing too for this business just just to just to note this. I mean, they expect to be free cash flow positive from here on out, and I think that's a big deal that is. because we've been targeting this for a while. And when you look at the obligation. This company has. I mean, they've got content obligations now of just under $23 billion, and they've got just under $18 billion worth of debt on the balance sheet. So they, and I mean, that's that's just fuel for this engine, right? That's just that's going to be in perpetuity, I think, for a business like this to a degree. But that free cash flow should help them, I think, going forward. Not only not only improve their financial position, but also keep keep that content coming out. They should announce a buyback. <laughs> I mean, come on. Here's the answer. <laughs> uh, we got a question from Bill in Seattle who wrote: Is there any concern about an ad-based system causing more Netflix subscribers to leave? And if that happens, what will be the revenue impact, if any? Well, I think a great question. And it is. But my assumption is, that, you know, that is front and center in their thinking: is we got to do this in a way that brings in more revenue. And doesn't and brings more people onto the platform, not less. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to see how that nets out because, I mean, in theory, it really does feel like it should bring more people into the fold than ever before. Now, the counter to that is there are likely going to be some subscribers that say, you know what, we just don't use Netflix as much as we used to, or we have other services that we use now, so we downgrade our subscription from like the mid tier down to the ad supported tier. I think the good thing for Netflix, at least there, is they don't see those subscribers leaving in full, right? You're keeping the subscriber in your universe. And we know those acquisition costs are just really expensive over long periods of time. So if it can ultimately enable them to just keep subscribers in their universe, even if they're just downgrading to a cheaper subscription, I think that's a net win for Netflix. Our email address is podcast at fool.com. Related to all this, we got an email from Sai who writes I'm interested in the connected TV and over the top advertising market, especially around the Trade Desk and Roku. My question is, how are they differentiated against the competition? How does Roku stack up against Amazon Fire and Apple TV? And how does Trade Desk stack up against Google, Amazon, and Facebook? Great questions, and you know, a reminder among other things of just how intertwined this entire industry is. When we talk about streaming entertainment, you have all of these businesses that are simultaneously competing with one another, 
and in a lot of cases having to work with one another. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there are a lot of dots to connect in this space, and I th- the word that always comes to, <laughs> comes to mind here is coopetition. I mean, there are companies that are partnering up and yet competing with with each other to a certain degree. I mean, you look at something like the Trade Desk, which is uh, the industry leader in programmatic advertising, and ultimately just sort of an independent. Uh, Provider of that demand side platform, and that's great, right? A very disruptive force, uh, you know, in in ad tech. You look at something like Roku, far more consumer facing, right? A streaming platform, and they've they've done a great job pivoting from being that hardware company that we knew so long ago to ultimately being more or less a software company, right? It's about the operating system. So you buy a TV, say, it doesn't matter whether it's a Samsung or an LG or whatever, but it's got that Roku operating system where you can then subscribe to all of your channels in that operating system. So Roku's getting a slice of the subscription revenue, but mostly, mostly it's the ad supported revenue that Roku is benefiting from. So two different businesses, but they play in the same sandbox. And it feels like there's plenty of room to own both of those. Now they're higher risk ideas when you put them in the context of your businesses like Microsoft, Amazon and whatnot. Yeah, I, I struggle with this too because and it's a great question by side. I think like there's a lot to unpack. I have a question though. I so I am, am I a dinosaur? Let me. I, we recently had it. I live out on a farm now, and we recently got Xfinity. Finally, they dug the hole, and I, so I have internet. And they, it came with an Xfinity Flex device, which is you know basically giving us all the connections to Netflix and Amazon and HBO that I had before, either via smart TV or some other device, and so. I feel like there's another player there, and, I, and so I, you're right. They all have to work together, and I just feel like it comes down to what is the customer experience and what you know what is uh, you know what makes it easiest for someone to connect to all their different apps. I can't tell you. They all seem really great and easy to me. Well, and uh, yeah, I mean, uh, Comcast was, you know, uh, not part of the question, but they're absolutely uh, they're, a leader yeah. when it comes to cable. They own Xfinity. They have a lot of content. They're they're the parent company of Peacock. Um, this is one of those things we were talking about this before uh, the show. That so often as investors, um, it's almost like our brains are wired to think in terms of uh, binary outcomes. It's like okay. Oh, Who's the leader here? Who do I think is going to win? And as much as any industry, this seems like one where I just want to say to anyone who's asking these types of questions, like, please don't try and pick one winner. Yeah. Um, which is one of the great things about being a stock investor. You can take a diversified portfolio approach, not just to your portfolio, but to individual industries. And and this seems like one where I like I don't know is that like I'm a trade desk shareholder. Are they going to be the big winner in this? Maybe, but I would hate to have a hundred percent of my exposure in the this industry just riding on one single company. Well, I mean, I think you you can really just adjust one word in, in what you just said there and say Only it's going to be a big winner instead of the big winner, right? And so I, th- I would encourage, I just encourage you to look at it from that perspective because we mentioned a lot of companies in there that, interestingly enough, are also playing in this in this sandbox. As I said before, I mean, NBC Universal, for example, they have their own ad tech, right? I mean, NBC Universal was actually in the running as a potential partner for. 
Netflix. Now, Netflix obviously chose Microsoft, and most people, if not everybody, never saw that coming because most people don't even realize the investments that Microsoft has been making in their advertising business until now when we've been able to dig into it a little bit more. So now you bring Microsoft into the fold, you see NBC Universal, which is owned by Comcast, they've got an ad tech business. You see Disney obviously securing what a record, that means $9 billion in advertising commitments here recently. 40% of those are devoted to streaming. Now, obviously, that is a big win for the trade desk because the trade desk is going to be handling Disney's advertising. But it just goes to show you, as you said, there's so many different companies out there serving so many different roles. It's kind of like the payments industry. It can be difficult to connect all of the dots. And Chris, you know, we're famous for talking about the war on cash here because it just doesn't seem prudent to pick a winner when there are going to be so many. Last thing before we go to break, um, lost in all of this is uh, early in the week. Disney comes out and says we're raising the price of ESPN Plus, and they really jacked it up. <laughs> I mean, this was not a oh we're bumping it up by a dollar a month. They went from seven dollars a month to ten dollars a month, but they kept the price of the Disney bundle exactly the same. So you get Disney Plus, ESPN Plus, and Hulu. For I think it's fourteen dollars a month, which signals to me that they are completely focused on getting people into that. Basically, saying, "Hey, we're jacking up ESPN Plus, but for just a couple bucks more, Matt, you can get an enormous amount of content." And it'll be interesting to see how compelling that is, because just on the surface, it's a strategy that seems like it should work. It should absolutely work. My only question about all this, though, is. There are only a certain number of hours a day that someone has to consume content. I know that, especially when I have a three-year-old son at home. Uh, you know, so it, they're going to be like, like I said, the basket approach is the right approach. There's going to be so many winners in this space, and it's it's an exciting industry to watch. I mean, Amazon's got their own uh, demand-side platform that basically competes with the trade. See, Jason desk. just keeps confusing and me. Yes, the keeps, trade desk. New companies just keep he keeps throwing out new companies that are in this space. So and yet, the trade desk has a partnership, and to some degree, with Amazon. So again, back to that coopetition. I mean, it's a really difficult one. To Parse, and that's why you got you got to be willing to take a look at a lot of different names. This is why stock investing is not for everyone. <laughs> it's also why it's a lot of fun. Absolutely. Up next, an impressive streak comes to an end for one of the best performing stocks of the past decade. Plus, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. Stay right here. This is Motley Fool Money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here in studio with Jason Moser and Matt Argusinger. Second quarter revenue for Domino's Pizza came in higher than expected, but international same-store sales fell 2%, which is noteworthy, Jason, because it's the first time 
international same store sales have fallen since 1993. <laughs> yes, yes, that is a shame. I mean, they are in good company because U.S. same store sales fell as well, 2.9%. Uh, but uh, just just a, a difficult quarter all the way around for for Domino's, but not terribly surprising. Revenue up 3.2%, but earnings per share down 7.8% as they continue uh, to witness inflationary costs. Right? They saw an average of of 6% price increases uh, for the quarter, but labor. Uh, remains a very difficult issue for the business. Uh, the carryout business actually performed very well. Comp for up 14.6%. Delivery fell 11.7%. They're just having a trouble having having some trouble locking down drivers. Uh, management set goals of hitting 25,000 stores and 25 billion dollars in global retail sales by 2025. They're just over 19,000 stores today, and the trailing four quarters of store growth is just over 1,200. So I'm not sure they'll be hitting those targets, but it is a very resilient business nonetheless. They've done a lot building uh, out the technology side of the business as well, so I, I suspect they'll be okay. So, DiMaggio Streak and then Domino Streak. <laughs> Man, there you go. Once again, our email address is podcasts at fool.com. Question from Sean Williams. Is it time to buy Shopify or wait? I would love to hear where the thesis stands on this one. What well, do you think, Matty? Yeah, if you look at Shopify, I mean, it's down 75-odd percent from its highs. So you're thinking, yeah, maybe there's an opportunity here. But, you know, if you look at the I'm just looking at consensus earnings estimates. Not just not this year. Let's forget this year. Let's look at next year. Twenty-five cents a share. Um, so even after the you know the you know the downturn, the split in the stock, I'm adjusting for all that. It still trades for about 150 times earnings. You can look at cash flow, um, and that's that's great. They they do about 500 million in operating cash flow, maybe normalized, but that's still 90 times that uh, based on their market cap. So. Again, Shopify is an exciting business, growing like gangbusters. I'm actually a shareholder as well. Uh, I just you got to be fearful of the valuation, even after this big downturn they've had this year. All right, let's get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Dan Boyd, is actually behind the glass this week. He's going to hit you with a question. Jason Moser, you're up first. What are you looking at? Well, earnings season is underway. So next week, Etsy reports on July 27th. Ticker is ETSY. You know, business that benefited clearly from the stay-at-home stock mania that has since come back to earth. But the Etsy's still doing okay, right? Last quarter, they acquired over seven million new. New buyers that was almost 60% up from Q1 2020. Uh, they also continue to see uh, reactivation of lapsed buyers. They saw 5 million reactivations in the first quarter a year ago as well. Uh, so, I think the big question for Etsy, right, the headline over the past couple of quarters here has just been the, the, the fee change, right? They're raising fees for their merchant customers. And we saw a vocal minority uh, make a lot of noise about that. In reality, though, based on Management's comments from from a quarter ago. They say they saw less than one percent of sellers actually go into temporary vacation mode and kind of take a little bit of time off from the actual business. Uh, they saw active listings just drop a little bit less than one percent during that week as well, and that that has returned back to previous levels. So again, it seems like a vocal minority in regard to to those increases, and it does sound like they're using those increases to reinvest in the business and provide more for their merchant customers in the way of ads and payments and whatnot. Uh, but but I'll be paying attention to that language here in this call. Dan, question about Etsy? 
Etsy is a terrifying business, Chris, because I'll look at it and I'll be like, oh, I'll spend $15 on hobby supplies or painting supplies or something. And then my wife looks at it and says, man, this $900 handmade wooden cabinet sure would be nice to have. It's a terrifying business, Chris, which probably means it's a good business. As a shareholder, I appreciate both of you contributing. <laughs> Didn't sound like there was actually a question in there, Jason. No, I'll just, I'll just wholeheartedly agree and move on to Maddie. <laughs> <laughs> Matty, what are you looking at? I'm actually looking at Berkshire Hathaway, uh, ticker BRKB, well, unless you're Jason and can afford the A share. <laughs> um, <laughs> Fake news. <laughs> but this, this, this is astounding to me. In less than three months, Berkshire's stock price went from an all-time high of around $360 to a 52-week low Yeah, in less than three months. I mean, wow. it's... That for that size of a company and for Berkshire itself, that's that seems remarkable to me. Now it's up a bit over the past few weeks, but you can still buy the stock today at roughly one and a quarter times book value, which is right at the threshold where Warren Buffett has said in the past he'd be buying back the stock. So other than Chevron, I think that's where Buffett is probably buying these days. And so it's one of those few companies I think in the market right now that you can say, you know what, there's probably limited downside to it. Dan, question about Berkshire Hathaway? Yeah, does anybody have any A shares they want to gift me? <laughs> that would be my birthday's in September, but we could do a little early. It's cool. We could do a, go, a GoFundMe, right? Let's all let's all consider sure, to we'll, GoFundMe. We can buy one. Yeah, sure you're gonna buy one. Yeah. Just one. Uh, Dan, uh, two very different businesses. You got one you want to add to your watch list? Well, interestingly enough, Chris, I am a Berkshire B shareholder already, so I'm gonna be adding Etsy to the watch list because I think it's a very interesting stock. Terrifying. <laughs> Terrifying in a good way, though. That's right? right. That's right. All right. Jason Moser, Matt Argusinger, great having you in studio. Thanks. Thank you, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money radio show. The show is mixed by Dan Boyd. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.